When I spoke to the psychotherapist and writer Gary Greenberg, who corresponded at length with an imprisoned Ted Kaczynski, he told me that the reason Kaczynski serial-bombed American technophiles was that he couldn't do something the rest of us can do, which is to live in a constant state of ironic alienation from the world in which we understand that we're basically participating in and committing evil at every waking moment. We're destroying the planet, we're killing people in the third world, we're sucking up all the resources of the earth, and the list goes on. Yet somehow, we manage to get up, go to work, and pretend like nothing's wrong. That is a magic trick, and Ted Kaczynski couldn't pull it off. And somebody that can't pull it off that trick can't live in this society. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at Syncbook. It's Monday, June 27, 2016, and today we're going to consider authority in many different facets and we'll do so with a Canadian writer and essayist who has plumbed these depths and can give us a unique view. Xander Sherman is the best-selling author of The Curiosity School, Education and the Dark Side of Enlightenment, published in 2012 by Viking. Most recently, this past April, he wrote a long-form piece about schizophrenia for Esquire magazine, which continued a theme he explored in various Canadian newspapers. He has also written about anarchy for the Believer magazine last fall. Welcome, Xander. How are you doing this morning? Uh, very well. Thanks for having me, Doug. You bet. So. It's interesting because your body of work seems fairly disparate, but at the same time, there's this thread that connects it all together. Oh, you're going to have to tell me what that thread is. Well, I wonder if it isn't like this notion of alienation and authority. Hmm. Um, let's just start with ironic alienation. I mean, I definitely felt this say, oh, it was just under 10 years ago. Um, does it seem like... As time passes, the stakes for this have, have gone up, and that perhaps this is now a new stage of growing up. In how do you mean that in in the world? In, like, in, like as in, as a young person tries to figure out what they believe, they're dealing with their own ideology, and they challenge the status quo. They end up without a belief system, mm -hmm. and that you're in the state where living causes you grief yeah I, I mean i think that a lot of people feel um the uh <clears throat> the inherent emptiness i'm trying to give a better way of putting that just the um just the profound uh <laughs> emptiness and uh uh meaninglessness of life um now probably more than they have in the recent past anyway but like I don't I don't know if that's really a bad thing, and if you go back further than um, you know 50 or 60 years, and you keep going back um, a couple of thousand years, you get to um, thinkers like Nagarjuna, um, who said that you know that life is fundamentally empty and that that's the source of um, you know of joy and ultimately of enlightenment. So um, it's really dependent on the perspectives that you have and the events in the world, I think, that um, ultimately kind of inform how optimistic of a guy you are. Hmm. Well, so where it really interests me is that 
on this show, we like to explore things that are not necessarily in the mainstream, and mostly that means synchronicity, which is the idea of meaningful coincidence, mm-hmm. which is a fun thing, and, and everyone can respond to that. But if you go too deeply into something, there's the possibility that it starts taking apart your notion of the way things work. And so, like, this is one of those things where there's a warning there. So uh, in mythology, it's the notion of the trickster, where the trickster is going to lead you someplace that maybe you need to go, but at the same time, it might undo your conception of reality. Mm -hmm. And so in light of your essay about your brother, you know, I guess that's, that's what I'm curious about, where obsession turns into psychosis and where psychosis turns into schizophrenia. And is that something that is more of a, a fluky thing or is it something that everyone should be very aware of? Uh, I guess I'm not quite sure what you mean by obsession, but um, I, I think that, you know, some mental illnesses um, originate through, at least partly through an emotional impairment um, I, I don't have the view of medicine that that all mental illness is the result of you know misfiring neurons in the brain. That's a that's a reductionist view that I think ultimately tacitly assumes too much about the nature of consciousness. And I think that the human mind is a lot more complicated than that. However, I think that there are you know. Um, Many, many contributing factors to a mental illness, and some, some of them have to do with uh, an emotional kind of Im- um, impairment or blockade. Like, I remember when my brother was um, first starting to show signs of psychosis, he had some issues with our father. Our, our father had uh, stopped paying for his, um, his college tuition because for four years he had been paying for everything, and then... It was 2008, and my dad was um, kind of gutted by the market crash. So he, he started to say to my brother, you know, you need to um, uh, uh, take care of yourself more, and the support's going to be kind of uh, weaned off. My brother's really upset by that because he had, growing up, the feeling that um, we were always going to be financially okay, and that was kind of uh, woven into the fabric of our childhoods. And so he was upset and he was quite hurt by that. And that pain um, was never really uh, dealt with because by the time it became, his symptoms became more expressed, he was too far gone to have a a rational conversation with. So I think in his case, um, and I don't know about other people's cases, but I think in my brother's case, that sense of um, impaired emotions uh, was uh, a contributing factor to um, his the conditions surrounding his mental illness. But as you've studied this, do you get the sense that it was something he was uniquely ge- genetically predisposed to, so that these various factors came together to allow this, or do you think this could happen to anyone? I mean, I think yeah. No, people are some people are predisposed to mental illness. There's no doubt about that. Um, uh, we have no mental illness in my family. I certainly no schizophrenia. And so that's kind of 
surprising because typically that that disorder is passed um, from generation to generation. But um, he, my brother was a he was just a really sensitive guy. He was, you know, incredibly funny and talented and creative, highly creative. And he's the kind of guy who's so sensitive and creative that, um, you know, he shouldn't have been uh, doing things that, um, you know, uh, skewed his his already fairly tenuous connection to to reality, like smoking pot. Um, <clears throat> it's not really a comment on pot, but you know, I think that there there are people who can smoke it and there are people who can't. And my brother was definitely one of the guys who can't smoke pot. And uh, that was that was what what would be called the um, inciting event or the or the kindling of his predisposition to mental illness. Was so that's what's interesting in 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 our world, this kind of interesting internet world of quasi spirituality where. An individual needs an ego to have a sense of self, but there's a celebration of dismantling the ego in psychedelics because you want to uh, sense that, you know, there's this emptiness about life, but at the same time there's a connectedness too. And so there's this balance between trying to let more in, but also having your own unique sense of self. You know, I wonder... I mean, I'm always wondering about psychedelics and and how they are pretty dangerous. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a fairly contentious. Um, it is a fair, fairly contentious subject. I know that there's some people who think that psychedelics can be used in the treatment of mental illness. Certainly, they have in the past, and certainly there's been a resurgence of that more recently. Um, and I don't know. I, I, you know, I know that there are studies that say that they're uh, that that's an effective form of treatment, and there are probably studies that say that it's not. So, I I, did, I, I don't really know. I guess all I know really is about my own experience and my brother's experience, which was that for him, smoking pot was not a good decision. He's he was so sensitive that you know after a cup of coffee, he would start to get kind of um, kind of weird and. Uh, so after habitually smoking pot for years and years um, and living in the pot capital of Canada, which is the small town in BC called Nelson, <clears throat> he was, um, it, tra- it really did transform him and uh, led to, I think, an impairment um, with the world, with reality. Hmm. Have you read any Philip K. Dick? Yeah, uh, yeah I know. Well, I I know Phil Gaydick. I know his work. I don't, I don't think I've read too much of it, but yeah. sure. Well, because that's something that enters into his into his work is this idea that something is introduced into one of his characters, and then that something takes over that character, and then it, it, the the balance can't be found again. I'm thinking in particular of his book Timothy Archer, but um... yeah, he was he was a guy he was really concerned with authority and um <clears throat> and reality right like that that the theme of fantasy and reality is like and what's really true and what's really real is is a is a pretty major through line through all his work yeah well so that's what's interesting about your brother is that when it when you guys finally got him to be diagnosed you know and you thought you had a slam dunk they said no 
you know, there's nothing wrong with me. She just probably st- stopped smoking pot. But it, yeah. seemed, it seemed like there was definitely delusional, you know, paranoid problems with authority. It's like classic what we would think of as schizophrenia. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that, you know, um, there's a point where when your mind is rebelling against reality, it, it tries to um, insulate itself from um, people and from ultimately from authority in order to perpetuate um, the myth, you know, in order to, uh, to be comfortable in, in, in the delusion. And uh, when we went, when we took my brother to um, a well-known, well, highly regarded publicly funded uh, institution in Toronto for his second major psychiatric assessment, we were told that um, my brother was fine. This is after a year of delusions and psychosis and anger and um, a nightmare. And after a 45-minute consultation, they told us that my brother was fine and that uh, we had a family dysfunction issue that uh, my brother's problems were the result of our family, um, which just certified his, his illness. It like gave him, um, it like renewed everything, every paranoid thought and every uh, delusion had now uh, had, had the backing of medical science. So he was, he, from that day on, he was able to say, oh, well, the people at such and such an institution said that I'm fine. And then it's you, it's you people who are crazy. So, um, that was, uh, you know, that was probably the biggest setback that we had, and um, uh, it was really, it was really hard to to hear that. Yeah. And so, I'm going to take this a different direction. Um, so you write about Ted Kaczynski and John Zernan. John Zernan, yeah. Yeah, in The Believer, and. They had a problem with authority as well. And yeah, they did. <laughs> so <laughs> I was putting it mildly. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm. Well, could you explain who they are and then you know what their solution to the problem was? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, Kaczynski is uh, he's the Unabomber. He's America's most famous uh, domestic terrorist. Or at least he was. I don't know if he still is, but um, he basically serial bombed people for decades um, from a remote cabin in Montana. And uh, he uh, was before that. He's a brilliant mathematics professor at Berkeley, one of a handful of people um, who could do a certain kind of math. And um, he had an extremely high uh, intelligence quotient and. Um, but was nevertheless very angry at at what he perceived to be um, the invasion of technology and um, its encroachment on nature. And in his diary, he wrote that this is when he was in the cabin. That basically the moment he decided to um, start serial bombing American technophiles was when uh, he heard a plane fly overhead. Uh, and that was kind of the turning point for him. And, you know, that's not something that an everyday person would do. If we hear a plane, we're from the woods and we hear a plane fly overhead, 
we don't necessarily make the decision to start killing people, but um, for Ted, that was, it was the result of, um, I think what he would say is uh, a logical and uh, moral progression. And for John Dirzan, he's, um, he's kind of a different guy. He's, he's not, he, Zerzan was, he, he rose to prominence as a, a sort of apologist for Ted Gusinski. At one time, he was actually a suspect uh, informally in the Unabomber case. But then it turned out that he wasn't involved, um, but he was, he was just sort of a correspondent with Kaczynski and a sympathizer to not the murders, but the ideology. And um, John and I started uh, trading emails um, quite a few years ago when I was uh, 17 or something, just because I really liked him. I just really liked his books. He had a book called Running on Emptiness um, that I just thought was really profound and beautiful and also very extreme, <laughs> just very, very extreme. He calls for the physical dismantling of civilization and a return to uh, hunter-gatherer states um, or non-states, he might say. So he, uh, that, that's his thesis in a nutshell. And I was kind of compelled, not by that so much, but by the kind of person who would think that. And I wanted to know what motivations and things in his life led, led him to that conclusion. And that's what my story in the believer is about, not whether he's right or wrong, but why he thinks he's right and wrong. Which is a really interesting thesis, and it's one that, that's popped up before. I wonder... Is is the jury still out on whether or not Eden was truly the hunter-gatherer paradise? No. I mean, it, to my mind, like, I'm not an anthropologist, so I, I don't know how qualified I am to respond to that question. But um, both Zerthan and Kaczynski have tried to prove their theses through mostly mainstream but antiquated anthropological sources, Marshall Sands, Thomas Wynn. People have been around for decades, and um, and basically, their the correctness of their thesis depends on the interpretation of fairly nebulous anthropological evidence. In other words, it can be interpreted one way or it can be interpreted the other way. And of course, you know, because they have this argument in mind and they want to try to find evidence for it. They've interpreted the evidence, the anthropological evidence, in a way that favors their argument. But uh, other anthropologists who I spoke to for that story disagreed with that conclusion. Um, and um, no, they said that that pre-agrarian society was no Eden. I think it's a quote. Um, yeah, and that just kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Like there were things about pre-agrarian civilization that were, you know life was simpler then. The, the needs and wants of people were simpler. There's no doubt about that. And there's no doubt that simpler needs and wants create or lead to happiness in a way that is less attainable today. But that doesn't mean that we should, <laughs> that doesn't mean that we should blow everything up and go back to that state because it's better. Well, and so they're both anarchists. Who? Uh, Kaczynski and Dirzan? Yeah. Is that true? Kaczynski calls himself a neo-Luddite, and Zerzan calls himself an anti-civilization theorist. 
but yeah, for the for the layperson, I think anarchist is fine. What what is that? I mean, so if I was gonna say, what is the the modern ideology? It would be materialism. So like science is based on material, and the thing that drives everything in our society is the idea of a collection of material things. It just seems like really a surface kind of ideology. But so what is what is anarchy or an anarchist? I think generally anarchy, um, if you break down the meaning of that word, it just means without rules. And it, it um, without rules altogether, without without dominion, like without um, it's not just the absence of laws, but it's the absence of um, uh, power and authority. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and that's that's what anarchists really want. They want um, they want to return to or live in. Um, actually, Zerzan, I think would would harp on me for keep saying return to hunter gatherer. Right he, he calls it future primitive, like moving forward to a green state. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think anarchists are, are people who feel like they feel oppressed, and they feel like they live in a world that. Uh, is inauthentic and that is untrue and immoral. And a lot of the anarchists motivation for being anarchists comes from that, that very human and very universal realization, uh, the amount of repression, you know, the, the disaffection with politics, the um, anger over one environmental disaster after another, um, not to mention economic turmoil, not to mention global conflicts, not to mention poverty and starvation and homelessness. These are some of the issues that it feels increasingly like politics can't solve, that even leftist politics can't solve, that even leftist progressive socialist politics can't solve. So anarchy just goes more and more extreme because they feel like the extremity of their position is proportionate to the extremity of the times that we live in. Does that make sense? Yeah. They feel like they're, they're, that they're the only logical ones. <laughs> they feel like their position is completely rational given the set of circumstances and environment environments that we live in. But then is there the thought that there's a natural balance and that if you get out of balance with nature, then of course nature will correct the situation. So I'm thinking about how from a, like from a society standpoint, what puts the system in check as it were? I don't think, I don't know if I quite follow what you mean. So if, if a, if a population of beavers gets too big say, and they, I mean, nature is the thing that's going to put them in check if they, you know, like disease or whatever, if they take over a landscape. Do, do you know what I'm getting at here? So from a, from a standpoint of human beings, if we supersede nature and we take ourselves out of the natural balance, so there's no authority greater than us, mm-hmm. if there are no rules. So <laughs> I'm getting to like, wasn't, didn't you note that Steven Pinker was a, an anarchist in his youth? Uh, yeah, he called himself that. And then he witnessed the lack of rules, and yeah. then he changed his mind and said... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he flipped um, uh, because of some 
because of a riot in, um, I think it's Montreal. I think in, Thomas Hobbes, too, was influenced by what was going on out his window. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That is right. Um, and, you know, sometimes those moments happen, and it's, <laughs> or it's maybe sometimes they're, you know, retroactively, they happen retroactively. In other words, like maybe sometimes the person just kind of creates a story to neatly summarize the change in ideology. I don't know if that's the case in either Pinker or Hobbes, but um, certainly those transformative moments happen and certainly um, they're powerful when they do. Um, but I don't know if it's possible to extricate ourselves from nature. I don't know what the difference between people and nature is. Uh, do you know? Well, I no, we're definitely part of nature, but I think in our head we think we're above it because we are able to control our environment a little. We're not as um, influenced, you, 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 mm -hmm. you know? I mean, so that'll be the trick, I guess. So we're talking about how these environmental things continually arise. At what point, you know, did they actually put us back in check? Hmm. I see. Yeah. yeah. I mean, certainly, yeah, nature is uh, trying to correct itself um, constantly. And um, it's just a question of, you, you know, the more bad shit we do to nature, the harder it is for nature to correct itself. Um, but, you know, uh, hopefully, hopefully that stops because <laughs> it's a beautiful world and, uh, you know, we all need to live here. So. Yeah. Part of what I, what I was planning with, with uh, this series of shows is that I was kind of building it on a theme of running on emptiness and that was just a partly because this phrase came at me and it was from John's book. Yeah. Yeah. Good book. I'm wondering, so are you a hopeful person? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I am a hopeful person. I think that hope is not necessarily tied to reason. Um, so, I am hopeful even when confronted with so much reasonable evidence not to be hopeful because I just hope is like a hope transcends. I think reason it's just exists outside of it. And, um, um, and I feel tremendous hope. Uh, um, but having said that I'm pretty removed from like cities. I don't live in an urban environment. And if I did, I think I would feel a lot less hopeful than I do just being constantly inundated with um, uh, buildings and buses and advertisements and consumerism. I think that would deplete my hope supplies pretty quickly. But um, yeah, no, hope is a state and it's important for people to have hope and to remember it, uh, even though we are confronted with so much um, heartbreak and sadness all the time and so many reasons to retreat into fear and pessimism and violence it is it is important to remember that that hope is what will keep us moving forward and um, rehabilitate the planet it seems like there's a moment that's happening where we're moving towards 
more rules than less rules out based not out of hope but definitely on fear mm -hmm. yeah you can see that obviously with brexit and everything the retreat into um uh nation states and um you wonder you know uh about the american election and if it's hard to imagine how the diehard Bernie people are going to deal with um, Clinton and how the diehard Trump people are going to deal with Clinton and what's going to happen when she probably wins to those two different very strong extremist groups. And I can like imagine, this is somewhat dystopian, I guess, but I can imagine, you know, the... Um, the Trump people being so angry and so disaffected that, that they um, want to break off and create kind of like nation states or um, somehow subdivide from the country. And, and I can kind of see Bernie's people doing that too, um, because we've reached a point in the, in the political climate where ideology has kind of replaced the democratic process. It doesn't really matter what's true or not anymore. It just matters what you believe. And I think that's a dangerous place for politics to, to be. I think politics should be as neutral as possible and as reasonable as possible. And the democratic processes that have been in place for hundreds of years, I think, should evolve but largely stay the same. And these, you know, extreme proposals to radically change um, the political uh, structures, whether in Britain or the United States, uh, just feel like, you know, uh, that they're taking the world into the opposite direction. Uh, I'm not saying anything that is all that interesting or different. Uh, that's pretty. That's a pretty mainstream belief. Do you think so? That's that's something that I'm curious about. Whether or not people's minds are so made up at this point that it doesn't matter. There's no influencing. You know. You can't reach people anymore, so there's no the the conversation is basically pointless. Yeah, that's right, man. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, you can't talk to people anymore. They uh, people don't want to let you start. You open your mouth and you say a few things, and you're just you're pegged as a Trump person or a Bernie person or whatever, and then the other person just shuts off. and And that's what I meant, I guess, about ideology placing, replacing political discourse you know it just doesn't it just doesn't matter what the facts are anymore there's no persuasion anymore there's an unwillingness to try and see someone else's perspective or it's the notion of truth that there is this truth and that i have the i have the truth so there's no no there's no reason for me to consider what you're saying because i already know the truth yeah yeah and that's not based on anything other than uh uh a lot of the times just ignorance like the the trump people who you know believe in you know conspiracy theories and the moon landing whatever chemtrails whatever like you can't the more you try to deny their side of it the more they just incorporate the, that denial into their narrative that they and they alone have the truth okay so then let's take this an, another direction and and talk about your book about education and so I'm, I'm i'm thinking in terms of how what is the purpose of education the purpose of education is to educate 
that that should be the purpose of education. What we have now and what we've had for 160 years is 170 years, I guess now, is an educational system that manufactures the outcomes needed by society. School is is calibrated to to reverse engineer social needs. So if it's wartime, school makes soldiers. If it's um, industrial time, student or school makes workers. If it's you know we need more scientists and engineers because we're being outcompeted by Asia then you know school turns out more scientists and engineers and you know nowhere in that thinking is the idea that education should be for education's sake that that learning is intrinsically worthwhile that to be knowledgeable and wise is enough and that if you do educate people for the sake of education, you, that you will imbue them with the passion and the creativity needed to um, innovate economically and um, you know make the world a more exciting and um, affluent and um, peaceable and safe place. So it's just it's completely backward, and it's been completely backward uh, since the beginning. And that's um, that I think explains a lot of the uh, the problems that we see. Hmm. And in writing this book, did you find education systems that were uh, authentic and and created outcomes that produced <laughs> individuals imbued with life? I mean, there have been systems that have tried to do that. But it's really, it's a hard thing to do. Um, it's a very hard thing to do. Like the Montessori and the Waldorf, they have their own agendas. I'm not saying that it's bad, but there is definitely like an agenda at each of those different, um, with each of those different methods. Same with homeschooling, same with unschooling, um, same with private schooling. Um, it's very hard to escape the mandate of a school and i'm not sure that and i'm not sure that you need to or that that's what's required uh, i think what is important and what i preach is diversity of education um having a student be enrolled in a public school for a few years then a montessori school for a few years then a private school that can be afforded um because i really think that Seeing things from different perspectives is probably the greatest education you can get. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I went to a community college in Seattle where it was at the top of the top of Capitol Hill, and it just seemed like there was a lot of different kind, just a whole bunch of people going there, and because of that, it just created a unique environment to experience things from different points of view. When we get walled off, the, the, the rightness of our actions is easy enough to say, oh, of course we're right because, look at we all believe the same thing, but then you get around people with different experiences and you realize, oh, it's a bigger world than, than what, I, what I know. So, which is mm -hmm. interesting in, in terms of Zerzan, where he... He's mellowed through time. Yeah. 
Yeah, and he's not selling out. You know, he gets that charge a lot from other anarchists and stuff like, oh, you've made all these compromises. You say that you don't like technology, but you trade emails with people and you've got a radio show <laughs> and you go traveling all over the world and stuff. I don't feel like that's fair at all. Like the guy has just found a way to live in this world, you know, with the extreme principles and morals that he has, he's just found a way to live. And that's, you know, that's, that's what it's about. It's very hard for someone like him to do that. And, uh, and he's done it. So, you know, God bless John. He's a great guy. So where is your work taking you now? Um, well, right now I'm actually working on a, an investigative true crime story. Um, I'm also working on a, uh, a book about my brother. Uh, mental illness is like a subject that I'm exploring more and more just um, in this, or I guess next month's issue of The Sun magazine. It's got a long-form Q&A with the psychotherapist Gary Greenberg, who I also um, spoke to for that Believer piece. Uh-huh. Gary's a great guy. I don't know if you know his work, but you should check it out if you don't. He's um, fairly radical and um, has a lot of very good things to say about psychiatry and um, and the state of uh, yeah, the state of modern psychiatry. It's through him really that I've learned a lot more about how to understand what's happened to my brother. In in both the different articles that I read about your brother, you kind of leave things from a place of hope. Yeah. So in in one of the pieces, it's about your kind of dramatic rescue going into the into uh, I think it, Vancouver into, into Nelson. Yeah, Nelson. Yeah. Yeah, which and, is just a yeah, a little bit east of Vancouver. And so that's completely on the other side of the country from where your family was at. Is that right? Yeah, from where I live. Yep. Yeah. Um. But you end things in in a pretty positive place in both that and the Esquire piece. I'm mm -hmm. wondering, do you are you still in that situation now, or how are how are things going? I mean, it's up and down. It's a roller coaster, and where those stories ended. I felt those things. I felt hopeful at the end of both of those stories. And I wrote from that hopeful place. Since then, you know, there have been more setbacks and so on. Uh, but, and I knew that at the time of writing, I knew that it wasn't going to be just, you know, <laughs> just better now, just a hundred percent better. Uh, so I knew that, but at the same time, <clears throat> you know, you got to leave people with some hope. And also I had some hope myself. So um, that's why that decision was made. Hmm. Mental illness, people who suffer from serious mental illness are, um, are in a world unto themselves. They, uh, it is hard to even articulate what their suffering might be. It's maybe impossible to do that, and um, it is living with a, having a family member, a loved one with a serious mental illness, is as close to a hell that I think could be imagined. I often think of it like um, like Dante, Dante's Inferno, the Ninth Circle, <clears throat> where um, you just in the, in the bottom of hell where there's, um, where there's no hope 
and uh, everything is perverse. That's what it feels like all the time, and um, it's very hard. It's very hard for uh, for me and for my parents, and uh, you know, only that much harder for my brother. Well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you, Doug, for having me. You bet. You've been listening to Xander Sherman on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and SyncBook.com. Be sure and check out his book and its essays, to which we'll link. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio, and videos, as well as monthly online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much, and I don't know what I want, but I know how to get it. See you